Welcome to Bonafide HPP, a podcast designed to educate and support the families and caregivers of those affected by hypophosphatasia. As a mother and caregiver, host Deborah Fowler has discussions about this rare genetic bone disease with people from around the world. Join Deborah now as she speaks with this week's guest. Dr. Wright, thanks so much for joining us today for our inaugural podcast. We're so excited to have you here with us. Absolute pleasure. Uh, I'm happy to join you. Look forward to chatting. Yeah, we've had the pleasure of working together through many years, through webinars, in-person patient meetings. I've attended some of your presentations at some of dental meetings. And during that time, we've heard a lot of questions from patients and caregivers about their dental health. And so we've narrowed it down. And the title of this podcast is the top 10 burning questions about HPP and dental health. So I wanted to start just uh, personally before we get into the nitty gritty, but tell us about how you got involved with HPP in the first place. Well, uh, yeah, it goes back a long ways, actually, kind of early in my um, specialty training career and, and early interest in genetics. So um, when I was specializing in children's dentistry, pediatric dentistry, I was challenged with a lot of interesting um, cases that were complex genetic cases. And at the time, this is back in the early 80s, there was very little known about the molecular mechanisms, nothing known about the actual genes involved because we just hadn't evolved and have those, the, the knowledge to be able to do gene sequencing. And that didn't really exist at the time in a meaningful way. So um, I was seeing patients with hypophosphatasia along with, you know, uh, a lot of other different conditions. And uh, all of those types of cases, they presented new challenges. One is to the diagnostics. What is it? And, and, and why does it happen? And what do we know about it? And then at the time, and in some, some aspects, still we don't know a lot about a lot of things. But um, those were challenges, and, and um, of course, for me, it's always been about one thing, and that's about the people. It's about, in mm-hmm. my case, it, it starts with children, but it extends to families and the communities, and I've been a strong advocate for um, a variety of, of groups um, of people that, that are challenged with different kinds of access to care, oral health care needs, genetic uh, conditions that affect the craniofacial and oral complex and beyond. So... Um, you know, it's, uh, it's something I've been doing since, again, since the 1980s. And wow. it always emanated from uh, it emanated from kids and families. That's, uh, you know, it's, uh, trying to help people with their oral health. Well, so that's how I got started with it. You've definitely helped so many people. I know every time after we have a webinar, we just are constantly having so many compliments about how comfortable they feel having conversations with their dentists and just feel more educated and empowered to have those discussions about a plan and a path forward. So thank you so much for, for all that. Um, you know, now we get into the, the top questions. And one of them is, is there a specific periodontal routine, um, cleaning treatment, if you will, for HPP as far as how, to, how often to get cleanings, what type of cleanings to have done? Um, and then there's kind of a subset of that question, which is, you know, what do you do if your dental plan doesn't cover more frequent cleanings? And we can talk about each of those uh, separately because there, there's some legislation going on that I think may help with the uh, dental plan piece. But would love to hear your your take on what's really the recommendation for HPP patients around cleanings. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a great question. And it really is an individual. Um, the answer is really based on the individual. So there is no cookbook. You do this. And at this time, you do that. 
because some people need to have their teeth cleaned more frequently depending on the level of disease. And that's just, so, you know, you could have um, hypophosphatasia and not have periodontal disease that, that's nearly as significant as some people that don't have hypophosphatasia. On the other hand, it does predispose you to having issues related to your teeth loose, becoming loosened, um, losing teeth. If the more severe your disease, the studies show the more likely you are to lose teeth over time. So, um, you know, it's predicated on all those things, um, the type of bacteria that you have in your mouth and, and other habits, environmental pressures, people that smoke more likely to have periodontal disease. So it's really predicated on what the individual factors are, what what your what your background is, and I mean background in the way of what are is your genetic background. So in the case of HPP specifically, it would be what do you have specifically, and what are the what's the severity of that? Where do you fall into the range of variability of that? So if you have severe disease, you're probably going to need to be more vigilant, and that means better cleaning. Um, for anybody, you could say that pristine hygiene and cleaning is going to be better than not, right? Sure, so, sure. Um, but how, yeah, so how much you need to do that then in the periodicity somewhat depends on how good you are at it and what level of disease you have and those kinds of things. But cleaner is better, um, and it, you're never going to sterilize your mouth or anything. So brushing effectively, and part of it's not, oh, I brush three times a day. Well, there's brushing and there's brushing. If I sweep the floor, but I only get the corners or I don't get any of the corners or whatever, um, it's not not very effective. So learning effective technique, and that may be using a manual toothbrush. You might supplement that with a mechanical toothbrush. The electric toothbrush, those sure. can be very helpful as well. Um, how frequently do you have them professionally cleaned? Um, some people, depending again on their level of like tartar buildup. So you have calculus buildup or tartar, which is the mineralized biofilm that sticks to your teeth. That's a gum. That's an irritant for your gingiva, the gums around your teeth, and it will cause inflammation. And you may have that. That can cause periodontal disease. So that you want to get off of there. And you can not clean it off yourself very effectively because um, we use we have different kinds of techniques and um, different instrumentation to be able to do that effectively. Ultrasonic scalers and metal. Um, scrapey picky things <laughs> to put it into that kind of language, but to clean that stuff off the teeth and get them so you don't have those irritants. Some people need to have that done every three months. Some people can get sure. away with six months. Mm -hmm. Some people might get away. You know, young patients, you know, kids, they might go a whole year and not really have kind of an issue because they don't build it. Some kids do, but many don't. As you get older, that becomes more of an issue. So it really is very individualized. Recommendation is to have that discussion with your oral health care provider and say, you know, if I'm not in good health, if I'm having periodontal issues or my teeth are loosening, what can I do to improve that and would it help to have greater frequency? So the second part of your question is what if insurance doesn't pay for yep. it? Well, yeah, the healthcare system, unfortunately, is pretty regimented in those kind of things. And if it's private insurance and even if it's government insurance, some government insurance for adults, there's not very good coverage in most states. Adult Medicaid um, doesn't really cover much if there is adult Medicaid dental coverage. Um, Medicare usually doesn't really have um, have much in the way of dental benefits. So private insurance varies significantly. Frequently, they're not going to pay for cleanings more than twice a year. Mm -hmm. um, and, they, and, and other services will have other regulations. And it depends on the policy and the carrier and all that kind of those, those issues. Highly variable. Um, yeah. And many people don't have any dental insurance. And those issues, if you don't have insurance of any kind, it's out of pocket. Um, and if it's um, if you need cleanings more often or any other service that might be beneficial and they don't they're not covered, then again it becomes an out of pocket expense 
Um, and there, there is legislation for, um, and I don't know which one you were going to talk about, but there's like the Everlasting Smiles Act. Yes. That is, that's yeah, what so I was that's going to talk about. Yeah. That's the one you're talking about, right? Yep. So that is, um, that is on the Hill and it's, um, in a committee as the last I heard, I actually sent an email out about it today, but that is to help cover people whose oral health is, um, challenged because of genetic conditions like HPP and many other things, ectodermal dysplasias and epidermal isoplasia, many, many conditions to help have that covered by medical insurance because it's a it's an underlying health condition and it's not because of just negligence or tooth decay. And the, um, the, the hope is that that will actually then help provide a more universal health care for these, for the oral health of individuals that are challenged with these conditions to, to have optimal oral health. So, Hopefully that'll pass and that yes. won't change things. But but for now it's out of pocket. That's yep. what it is. Yep. Yeah. And that, that brings up another question just about, you know, you talked about the variability in kind of each patient and how it's different from patient to patient. Is there an underlying mechanism of what's causing the decay that's the same as a traditional patient, or is this something really unique going on with HPP? Well, in HPP, so there's two issues. That the, the two biggest things that cause tooth loss are tooth decay, cavities, and periodontal disease. So in HPP, the, the one issue that could challenge, um, could be challenging for some individuals is if they are that subset of people that also have enamel defects, because that's the hard outer shell of the crown of your tooth. And if it's got porosities or the enamel's not, um, it's got pits in it, and that, those are little nooks and crannies where the the bacteria are going to be hanging out, hard to brush off. And if you're eating carbohydrates, sugars, they'll eat that and they'll make acid and they'll decay your tooth. So that's one challenge. Now, there's not any evidence that I'm aware of that people with hypophosphatasia have higher caries rates than the general population. Okay. But the general population gets a lot of tooth decay. So yeah. you're not immune from it, you know? That's yeah. just one of those. That's just part of being a human being. You yeah. get all the other bad stuff. You sure, know? So sure. The, 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 yeah, the other issue is the periodontal disease. Now, that is, there's the, the mechanism because of the, the alkaline phosphatase being important in the formation of a tooth and also the, the root tissue, which is called cementum, that covers the root, which is what anchors it through a ligament to the bone. But it's essentially the tooth attachment, and it's very... Um, Alkaline phosphatase is critical for the normal formation of that. So in people with hypophosphatasia, that anchoring layer that covers the tooth root is not formed um, optimally. And so you have a diminished attachment to the bone and it's variable, you know, between the severity levels. So that's the mechanism by which you have the increased risk for periodontal disease. Caries is still, it's like everybody else's risk, you know, if you're drinking a lot of sugar-sweet beverages or, you know, eat a lot of candies, and you have the, the right bacteria and those things, then you're going to be more likely to get tooth decay. You'll have that. Sure. Periodontal disease, is, periodontal disease specific, um, has a specific etiology related to the, the mechanism, uh, the cause is related to the hypophosphatasia. Sure. And, and because of that, I mean, we're talking about the prevalence of caries in the general population versus HPP. I mean, is there any greater recommendation for something like sealants? We get a lot of questions about sealants. Is that, I mean, I know a lot of, uh, you know, just people who don't have HPP get sealants. Is that just a general uh, recommendation that you make for kids or is it specific to HPP that you would add that additional uh, level of protection? Yeah, so I mean, we know that sealants are highly effective on preventing cavities in the 
tooth decay in the like the pits and fissures, which is like the biting surfaces of the molars in the back. Um, and that's it's not a hundred. It's not like you put them on every single person that walks in the door. But we do know that if you took a hundred people that walked in, kids mostly, but um, and these studies were all done in children, um, school age children, you know, so like six year olds to twelve year olds, thirteen sort of school age. Um, they, if you take a hundred kids and you sealed them, there would be seventy percent fewer caries developing on those teeth in the sealed group compared to those that you didn't do. So that's a pretty standard um, for any condition. In some conditions, it's even more. You know, there's like hypophosphatemic rickets where they may have generalized enamel defects across the dentition. Then the sealant can help protect more than just even the biting surfaces. So it would be a, you know, an enhanced possible recommend, a recommendation. In hypophosphatasia, usually it's just looking at the tooth. Does it have a lot of little pits and fissures, nooks and crannies that you need to keep the biofilm and the bacteria from crawling down in there? Then you recommend sealant. So common in the general population commonly recommended for hypophosphatasia, but not necessarily to 100% of people. Okay. Okay. A another question we get a lot is, is really people want the comfort of knowing that they are seeing a dentist that has HPP expertise. And how necessary is that? Should you just go to any dentist? Should we be referring the dentist to some of our educational materials? How important is that experience with HPP in the dental setting? Well, that's a great question. One is you're not going to find a lot of dentists that have that experience just because it's not that common in the general population. Um, so um, for most dental things that you may have issues with, it's probably not that critical. Although having said that, I would say that you definitely would like to have a dentist and, and have them be able to do and interested in doing exactly what you said, which is get the material from um, the organization, um, do their homework and read about it, learn about it, um, listen to the parents, uh, listen to the patient uh, because they frequently know a lot about it. And um, if they're not doing that and they're like, well, uh, you know, they're, they're just going to roll on the way they would always roll on. Sure. You might want to find somebody else. Yep. So, but uh, you know, for most of the things, the dental cleaning, you're not really doing it differently for most of the techniques that they would be carrying out. They're not necessarily going to do them differently. Um, cleaning the tooth is cleaning a tooth for the most part. Um, there may be some subtle variations as to, you know, you may be a little gentler and scaling around a tooth, uh, certainly if it was mobile and hopefully they would be doing that anyway. Again, that's right. kind of common sense. So yeah, I mean, it would be nice if there were um, people that were out there familiar with all the rare diseases out there, but that's not the reality that we live in and it's not ever going to be. Um, you just need to have practitioners that you're comfortable with that are willing to learn with you and take that journey with you um, and that you, you know, you, they're, they're listening to you. And mm -hmm. if you find that, you're probably in good shape. Mm -hmm. Agree. Is there anything regarding structural changes to the mouth that patients should be aware of with HPP? For example, is there abnormal bone growth to the palate or anything that patients should be aware about or bring to their dentist's attention? Well, so they're going to have similar kinds of malocclusions and bone growth that the general population will have, but there are, um, you can have some other kinds of changes. The bones are, the bones are, are, are not, um, may not be mineralized to the same level as other bones. And so 
if you have other forces, for example, if a child sucks their thumb or if they have a pacifier habit or, you know, those kind of things, or they have muscular changes, all of those may mold the bones in a little bit different way. So um, could they have, and, and there are, I think there are some studies suggesting that there are some differences. There's not, again, a lot of studies on like looking at um, the head, head x-rays and measuring everything to say, oh, yes, they have this kind of um then you can have craniosynostosis and that's going to change head form. So there, again, on an individual basis, you certainly want to monitor uh, mm -hmm. for children's illness, monitor growth and development, yep. see how they're, you know, what kind of environmental stressors might be modifying that. Do they have a thumb habit, they have a pacifier habit? And again, that we do that for everybody, but you may have a little different response in that population. That's not, not a lot of science to say that, but um, I have had multiple cases of hypophosphatasia where they had an open bite in the front, uh, their anterior teeth didn't come together. And, you know, and that's not uncommon if you have a thumb habit or a pacifier habit, but probably a little more prominent in, in some of these kids. So, yeah, but again, it's an individualized thing. Yeah. Um, and certainly a lot of people can have hypophosphatase and have beautifully aligned and normal bone growth. And then on the other hand, they may not. So you, you know, monitor that. And then when, if you were going to correct that orthodontically, you would definitely want to be cognizant of the the differences in hypophosphatasia. There's very little out there in the literature about, um, you know, there's case reports essentially. There's not anything beyond that. Um, and I've seen a couple of cases that I've, I've myself seen. I haven't treated anybody with braces with hypophosphatasia, but know people who have been treated and, you know, they can have it done. Uh, there are, and there are different ways now to do that. And I think the practitioner again would want to know, okay, there are issues related to bone and tooth attachment. I'm going to proceed with an extra degree of caution. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that you don't do it, but you would want to proceed with extra caution, um, knowing that there's probably increased risk for having some some potential negative effects um, from doing those kind of treatments because of the hypophosphatation. Okay, that that makes a lot of sense. What about um, common practices for cosmetic purposes? You know, teeth bleaching. Any anything to be aware of there with HPP? Is it safe? That's a great question. Um, you know, bleaching you know, for cosmetics when and all the over-the-counter things that you put on, they're basically peroxide-based um, materials or they are materials that break down into hydrogen peroxide, which does, um, you have different kinds of oxygen compounds and things that are released as you do that. If you do it too much, it's well known that you'll get tooth sensitivity um, and you can't have some, your, your gingiva may not react pleasantly to all of that if you do it a lot and too much. Yeah. So if you're going to do that, again, I would proceed with caution. Um, I would not overdo it, and I would be cognizant if you noticed anything happening. That, there's no evidence. I've never read a report where they said, oh, yeah, they bleached their teeth and their teeth started falling out because right. they had hypophosphatasia. I haven't right. seen that. But just just knowing that it's, it's an environmental irritant, we know it's an irritant, and if you have compromised tooth attachment and some of those things, again, I would just proceed with caution. On the other hand, if you hate the way your teeth look and you're not willing to smile and it's psychosocially affecting you, then that's one avenue. There's other ways to get your teeth whitened. I mean, you could put veneers on them. You could do a variety of other things. Um, bleaching is one of the, I would say, less invasive, less expensive approaches to doing that. But um, I would just have, a, I would be a little more um, cautionary moving forward with that. Okay. That doesn't mean I, but it doesn't mean I wouldn't do it. Yeah. Right. Well, there's, and there's a lot of discussion in our patient community about 
other things like dental implants and, you know, to your point about veneers and, you know, I, I think, you know, you've made the point that it's, it is a case by case basis, but, you know, is there any reason to suspect that restorative dental work would not hold the same way on a tooth surface or, you know, obviously implants is probably a, a different answer than something like a veneer, but, you know, any words of wisdom or caution to patients that are considering some of these other treatments? Yeah, so in, in most cases, the enamel, by all measures and um, reports and, and even work that I've done, the enamel is usually pretty normal in mineral and structural content. Now, sometimes it may not be 100% that way, but it's usually you can bond to it and stick to it. The dentin inside the tooth, which is more like bone, and alkaline phosphatase is, is important in the development of that like it is in the tissue coating the root surface. You can have, in more severe cases, you will have probably less mineral uh, mineralization, which means that the inside dentin, which provides the bulk of the, the tooth and the support for the harder outer enamel, mm -hmm. may not be as well mineralized and it may not be as strong. So my take home on that is you can try conventional, um, just, you know, dentists can do what, whatever kind of filling they're going to do. Mm -hmm. If, however, you're having that and it's falling out and they, and they put it in and it falls out, I would consider a different approach, and that may be that you'd be better off putting a crown on that tooth. I wouldn't have a filling put in, you know, a whole bunch of times um, because there may be something inherent. Either the technique is not that good or there's an issue with that, but sure. it could be that the, the tissue itself is not uh, as well mineralized and is not holding up. And I think, and there's no data on this, but I've heard just in, in discussions with people about cracked teeth. Uh, in fact, I do think there is a there is there is a publication showing that there's fairly high prevalence of cracked teeth yeah. and um, endodontic therapy in the hyperphosphatasia population in the adult that's higher than the general population. And I think that the mechanism again is what I'm saying is that the mm -hmm. inside of the tooth may not be as well mineralized as well. Sure. So you can try the more conservative, like a filling that they where they drill, you know, cut a little slot into the tooth. Um, if that's not working and that one's falling out, then you can do around the tooth and put a crown over top that kind of latches onto the whole tooth and actually sort of helps strengthen the, the outside of the tooth to hold it together. So that's that's, a, that's an approach. Yeah, that that's that's good good advice. What about um, you know, we we also get questions in addition to cracked teeth. That's another one that's not on the ten list, but that's one of the questions we get quite a bit is about receding gums. Is is any literature or any um, connection been made between HPP and gum recession that's any different from the general population? Well, as you get older, that tends to be something you get long in the tooth. That's a phrase for a reason. <laughs> you tend yeah. to have your, your, your gums recede back. But in hypophosphatasia, I mean, I haven't seen where they've actually measured it, quantified it, but um, I know in children, when the teeth are getting loose and falling out, you definitely have gingival recession. The gums sure. recede back because they're they're not attached properly. If you have severe, um, a severe, you're in the severe spectrum spectrum of, of even the adult hypophosphatasia, um, or you're a, a child that hasn't been treated, then that may change these stories significantly. Um, but if you're an adult and you have it, my suspicion would be you're probably at increased risk for having your your gums recede more than the general population, which would go back to the very first question about the effectiveness, but also being gentle. So when you're cleaning your teeth, you want to be gentle, but you want to be effective. So scrubbing them hard is not how you do that. Uh -huh. You don't have to do, you don't have to do it hard and you need to 
there's good techniques so that, that you reduce the likelihood of sawing through your teeth, which a, a toothbrush will do, or causing harm in gingival recession. So um, again, if you're if you're having issues with that, that's a place where you want to talk to a, a you know dental hygienist, a dentist, and get some recommendations on how can I do this in a gentle but effective way to mm-hmm. help prevent that from getting worse. Great. I mean, kind of switching gears here to another topic. We we have a lot of patients who are on feeding tubes or have teeth that have fallen out prematurely and are just struggling to get food down and keep food down, right? So uh, what do you tell patients who uh, you don't have teeth and, and they're wondering, what can I feed my kid? You know, can I give them pizza? Can I give them an apple? You know, is it, should you just... Um, treat them like any other child or should you be taking uh, different precautions based on their dental health? So you're saying kids, would did you say kids without teeth or kids with um, both? I like guess kids, there's or? some kids who have feeding tubes just because they're, right. they're a little smaller and have a, maybe they're not eating as much as they should and keeping food down. Right. So we have a lot of patients around feeding tubes and then some who just don't have teeth. And the idea of trying to get those kids on feeding tubes to try to start eating when they don't have teeth is challenging. So, do, you know, do you have advice for parents or who may be in that situation and trying to get their their children to start to eat solid foods? Um, I mean, there are people who there are um, uh, groups that help with some of those things actually to to move people off a of G tube to more solid foods, but. Um, and I'm not an expert in doing that, but um, that would be one would be to consult and say, well, is there, are there people that can provide guidance? So my guess would be, my, I mean, what I would usually do. And so there's some kids who are fully G-tube fed. They don't eat, mm-hmm. they don't take anything by mouth mm-hmm. and, and that can be swallowing issues. But if it's just, you know, you're trying to gain weight or you're doing other things and they can take something, um, you know, if they've got, if they don't have any teeth, you're, then you're going to have to do soft food. They don't have to be pureed completely because you can gum it pretty well. Kids can, you know, I've seen kids with no teeth didn't have any other issues and they could, you know, they could take a small piece of meat and mull it around and swallow that yep. pretty well worked up. So, you know, it's again, an, an individual kind of a thing, but um, if you have a totally G tube and you're trying to wean them to um, regular food by mouth feeding, then, you know, the G2 people have a lot of expertise in doing that. But, you know, you're probably going to start with softer things, getting them to take that, you know, there may be texture issues or maybe a variety of things going on as to how they do that. If they've got loose teeth and they've got hypophosphatasia, fortunately in the kids, usually it's more anterior than posterior. And then the kids will know. And so they're not going to bite into an apple with, usually they don't, I mean, they might, but usually (laughs) they've become protective of a loose tooth because it's not comfortable. Mm-hmm. And the back teeth, I mean, you do the same things you would do with if they had replacement teeth. You'd say, okay, you'd chop up an apple so they'd bite it on the back teeth. You know, you sure. would um, take a carrot and you could put in a smaller piece so they could get it between the back teeth and, and use those to crush them. So those are those are approaches for managing that. Yeah, no, that's, that's I, I was always really quite surprised to see how well a lot of HPP kids were able to eat a piece of pizza or to your point, you know, even a piece of steak with with not having those teeth, but you know, you make a good point about the rear teeth being um, many times intact and they can, it, a lot of it is preference, right? Kids have different tastes. They like different food. They There's kids who have texture issues. So um, right. you know, it's kind of a trial and error to a certain point. And I, I think it's a great point to, to consult with some of the 
the feeding tube groups to find out what they recommend as well. Um, yeah, I mean, there's people that deal with all those issues, yeah, swallowing and, and, sure. and all that. So they can they can probably provide good guidance on some of those issues. And again, it depends on the severity of the case. Kid really wants a piece of pizza. I guarantee you, teeth is not going to stand them in, stand in the way of that. <laughs> they're they're going to go after that thing. Right. But you know. So. <laughs> Always a wealth of information, Dr. Wright. Thank you for being our very first guest on Bonafide HPP. In our next episode, we talk about physical therapy with an expert who has a wealth of experience with our disease. Until then, I'm Deborah Fowler, and you've been listening to Bonafide HPP, a podcast of Soft Bones, the U.S. Hypophosphatasia Foundation. Join Deborah and other patients on HPP and me where they continue discussing questions around hypophosphatasia and submit questions for the next podcast. Go to softbones.org and click on Community, then HPP and Me for instructions on how to sign up. This podcast and the intro music was produced and edited by me, Patrick Jaguer.